Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. A gracious and magnificent Father, let your mercy come and fall upon us that we might live, that your law would be our delight, that those who are insolent be put to shame as they have wronged your people and accused them. But let us put our faith not in their falsehood, but in your truth as we meditate on your precepts. And let those who fear you turn and rest upon you, that we, as your people, might make known your wondrous deeds, your glorious truths, your great testimonies that we might rest in your promises this very evening. Fill us with your spirit as you help us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Hear now the word of the Lord from Micah chapter 5, verses 1 to 6. This is God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Please take heed how you hear. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into your land and treads in your palaces, when we rise again him seven, raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod as its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. The age-old question that I think many of us have asked in, in our time, when Jesus was walking along the road to Emmaus with those two disciples, where did he turn? Luke tells us in Luke chapter 24 that he began in Moses and then all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things that was concerning himself. We're told later in Luke chapter 24 that he went to Moses and the prophets and the Psalms and pointed out the things that were concerning himself, how the Christ must come to be able to suffer and die. Or Philip in Acts chapter 8 as he meets the eunuch by the river, as he's reading the passage in Isaiah, speaking about the sheep. 
But we're told that then Philip opened his mouth and beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. He was not confined to merely that passage in Isaiah, but he began with that passage in Isaiah and then began to be able to preach the good news of Jesus. Where did they turn? Now you can turn anywhere in the Old and to be able to see Jesus on the pages of the Old Testament Scripture. But maybe they turn to Micah chapter 5. Now as we come to this lone passage in the middle of a book, in the middle of a period, in the middle of a time, maybe it's helpful to be able to understand where Micah is situated. And Micah chapter 5 is clearly in the book of Micah. He's one of the 12 minor prophets of the Old Testament. Now, that doesn't mean that he was less than. He was an intern and and merely just uh, serving as some form of minor prophet. It merely means length. Now, you could call them the shorter prophets, but then that would create a whole different issue. I'm sure you could work in some joke about there about Nehemiah at that point. But with the historical context that we find ourselves in the book of Micah is that is set within the 8th century B.C., the the kingdom has been divided and it is the tail end of the story of Israel, the northern kingdom, the, the uh, the ten tribes of the north. And during this time, there's severe and critical, significant political and social upheaval in the kingdoms of both Israel in the north and Judah in the south. The Micah begins in, in verse 1 of chapter 1, explaining that it happens during the periods of time between Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah. So this is really the tail end of those 700, 750 B.C. to 700 B.C. So Micah is preaching during the time of, of the fall and demise of Israel, the northern kingdom, and that falls in 722 B.C., and even Judah is going through this difficult time, although it does not fall. It's getting close to falling in about 7-1 B.C., although it does not fall. And during this time, there's major things that are happening. One is that Assyria is up to the north, and it is growing in superpower as an empire. This dominant force in the 8th century. And both Israel and Judah both face the threat of an Assyrian invasion and dominion. It really is a hopeless situation. This small little nation that's, that's, that's succumbed to this, this divide and, and attack now is facing this large superpower to the north. Not only do they have the external threat of Assyria, they also have the internal threat, which Micah really tries to address. And that is, their injustice within a nation, not looking after those in their midst, but also even religious corruption. There is problems with economic exploitation, oppression of the poor, idolatry. And here Micah stands up to be able to point out all of these errors, as any prophet does, calls them to repentance. But Micah really focuses on what is to come. This hopeless and helpless situation, and Micah speaks of this remnant that will be preserved even in this kingdom to the north. This remnant from the people of Israel, and and one of these key passages is where we find it tonight in Micah chapter 5. 
As you see, this Assyrian threat comes in, but even long after Assyria is gone, the people of God saw this as a prophetic thing that has yet to be fulfilled. That there is this hopeless situation, and Micah is speaking of hope that is to come. And Micah speaks of this restoration that will come to the nation of Israel. Despite these dire circumstances, Micah prophesies of this hope that will come. This anticipation, this future time when God would intervene, when this righteous ruler would come and there would come peace and justice. Now even in the times of Jesus, they understood that this prophecy was not yet fulfilled. Although it specifically addresses Assyria, when Herod heard from the wise men as they came to be able to ask where this king was to be born, Herod is troubled by the news of this new king. But he assembles the chief priests and the scribes and he, and he tells them where was the Messiah to be born. In Matthew, Matthew often will say this is to be able to fulfill the prophecy which has been told by the prophet. But here, even the, the scribes and the chief priests say that they know exactly where he was to be born. They turn to Micah chapter 5. In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd the people my people Israel. And they turn to Micah chapter 5 to show that this prophecy is not yet fulfilled. This is one of the reasons why the, the religious leaders in, in John chapter 7 don't believe that Jesus is the Christ because they believe he's born in Nazareth. They say in verse 22 that, that the Christ comes from the offspring of David, that Christ comes from Bethlehem. But it's not merely that this passage just speaks about the location of where the Messiah, the, the promised Messiah, would come. There's actually 11 things that we'll see in this passage. So what does Micah tell us about the Messiah? So now we begin an 11-point serpent. And you are sitting there and wondering how long this is going to take. Now, if you've noticed anything about preaching, it's never to be able to understand that a, a, a point is equal to the same amount of time. A preacher might say, here's a three-point sermon, and you get to the end of the first point, and you're looking at your watch, and you're saying, well, I am going to be late for lunch. A point does not always equal X amount of time. Or he gets, well, one final point, and you're sighing with grief, and you realize that it wasn't that long a point, and hopefully these 11 points are like the latter. So what do we learn about the Messiah in Micah chapter 5? The first thing that we see is that the Messiah will come from Judah. Now we've known this all along, that there's a promise, the Davidic covenant in 2 Samuel chapter 7 speaks of the son who will rule forever, that will come from the line of David, and David comes from the line of Judah. That there is in Judah the promise that there's a scepter that's going to be given to a son of Judah that will rule forever. And here, Micah is repeating this phrase. And you see this fulfillment clearly throughout all of Scripture. 
understood as this prophetic uh, uh, fulfillment, you turn even to the very first pages in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 1, where it explains that here comes Jesus Christ, the son of David. And this genealogy traces Jesus back to David, back to Abraham from the tribe of Judah. Where the book of Ruth makes it very clear that David's line goes back to the book of Judah. That fulfillment comes in in the final time in Revelation chapter 5, verse 5, when one of the elders turns to the apostle John and says, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered, so that he can open the scroll in its seven seals. Micah said this, Messiah is coming from Judah. The second thing that we see is the Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. This is what the understanding was of of the time in Jesus' day, that this prophecy was not yet fulfilled, that the shepherd had not come, the ruler had not come. And one of the markers that they're looking for is that they're going to be born in Bethlehem. We're told it very clearly in Matthew chapter 2. Now after Jesus is born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, these wise men came from the east to visit Jerusalem. Now we're told very clearly in the Gospel of Matthew that this is where Jesus is born. And, and the, the chief scribes and the priests, the chief priests and the scribes there are to be able to confirm this truth that Matthew states very clearly at the very beginning of that verse. Where is he to be born? And the chief priests and the scribes say very clearly he is to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. And what did, Je- what did Matthew say? That Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea. Now you could spend a lot of time at this point. This is the, the key that comes up from Matthew ch- Micah chapter 5 in the New Testament. But what you need to understand is that people were waiting and they were watching for this Messiah that would come. Anna and Simeon, at the start of the book of Luke, are waiting for that promised Messiah to be able to come. But how does this all come about? Why was Jesus born in Bethlehem? It wasn't because Mary and Luke were Mary and Joseph were seeking to be able to twist and distort their tale to be able to tell others of this great birth story. They're there because a pagan king orders a census. And it just so happens in this period of time that here they're on their way, they're dwelling in Joseph's household because he comes from the line of David. All because this pagan king orders his census. We also see as much as people were waiting and anticipating for this to come, there's some form of blindness that is upon them not to be able to comprehend or understand who he was. We're told in Acts chapter 17 that Paul goes into the the synagogues on the Sabbath to be able to reason with them from the Scriptures. And he explained to them and proved to them that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and be risen from the dead. Saying, this Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. 
all these evidences and all these things in the Old Testament that point to Christ, there was some form of blindness upon the people that they didn't quite understand what Christ had come to do. The wise men were looking for a king, and yet where was he born? In a manger, in a, laid in swaddling cloth. And they missed the point that Christ came to be able to suffer. And so too, when we think, and we think even of this, birth, this, this story, we think of Christ coming and, and be laid in a manger. And that's where the story ends. We don't think about why he came and was laid in a manger, why he came as a servant, why he came to be able to die on the cross. Now, you all know this about me, but I'm a little bit of a Grinch. I think some of it is somewhat justified, but, but I think some of the carols that we sing merely just sing and speak of his birth, and they move no further. And they use terms like hope and joy. But not the glorious truth in which our hope and joy is found. Not merely in Christ's incarnation, but his humiliation, his death upon the cross, his resurrection. Paul says quite clearly that we preach Christ and his death, his crucifixion. And if we merely speak Christ and his delivery, but not his deliverance, then we miss the message of what he had come to be able to do. And Micah does not merely just tell us where Jesus was to be born. He also tells us the third thing, that the Messiah would be the ruler in Israel. You see this all throughout all of Jesus' teaching about what he comes into the world to be able to do, that he, he might rule and reign over all things. He begins his ministry in Matthew chapter 4 after he'd been tempted in the wilderness. The very first sermon that he, he said is, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And the end of his, his ministry as he ascends up into heaven, he gives all authority to the disciples to be able to go and make disciples that he has all authority underneath heaven and earth, and this is the Messiah, as Micah told about. Jesus begins his ministry by saying, repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And, and in John chapter 18, he clearly says that his kingdom is not of the world. It's not merely a kingdom, but it is his kingdom. He is the ruler. The fourth thing that we see is the Messiah will be from ancient of days, from of old. How can something that is to come in the future be something that has always been in the past? What we understand now is we understand what is somewhat concealed in the Old Testament is revealed and in this mystery that Paul speaks of, of Christ coming. That who is of ancient of days, the psalmist writes, Psalm 90, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth of the world, from everlasting to everlasting you are God. Do we seek to be able to understand this fulfillment in, in Christ, the second Jesus, the, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, coming and taking on flesh, being born of a woman under the law? Do we understand what he means, that he has come from old, from ancient of days? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning he was with God. 
And all things were made through him, and without him anything has not been made. And John speaks in John chapter 1, verse 14, and says, The Word then became flesh. He dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Your John speaks of the eternal word that has always been, that has been from everlasting to everlasting, and he comes and dwells in amongst us. Why? That we might be able to see this glory full of grace and truth. Glory is the only Son from the Father. The fifth thing that we see is the Messiah will come at the appointed time. We see this all unraveling in God's perfect plan of redemption. It does not merely come days after in the, the, sixth, in the 7th century B.C., but comes at the perfect time. The God is not slow to fulfill His promises. Whereas Galatians 4 says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that they, we might receive adoption as sons. As Paul says in Romans chapter 5, we often hear this verse and we think of something else, but for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. It's not merely that while we were still weak, Christ died for the ungodly. It's at the right time, at the perfect point in history that God had ordained from the found, before the foundation of the world that he would die in that place and be risen again. All in God's plan that he had foretold. As Micah had foretold. He shall be given up, in verse 3, until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. The sixth thing that we see is the Messiah will gather his brothers. We see that at the end of verse 3, too, when the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. Here the Messiah will come and he will gather those who are far off and bring them in as a good shepherd goes out to be able to gather his lost sheep. John writes about it in John chapter 11. As the high priest Caiaphas explains that it's better for one man to die than to others. But John gives us this caveat and tells us that Caiaphas didn't say this on his own accord, but being the high priest, he, he spoke and prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. Not only for the nation also, but also to be able to gather in one of the children of God who have been scattered abroad. Here Christ dies to be able to save those who are His. The Christ, the Son of God, became a Son of Man so the sons of men could become children of God. The seventh thing that we see is the Messiah will be the shepherd of the flock. In verse 4, and he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. See this time and time again in the New Testament as we see that Jesus says that he is the good shepherd, the good shepherd who lays his life down for his sheep. The prophet which Ezekiel, another passage which speaks of the bad shepherds of the time, and God says that he will come down and he will be their shepherd. And Jesus is that good shepherd, or Peter in, in 1 Peter explains that Christ is the chief shepherd 
as he has left, as he has ascended into heaven and left these under-shepherds to be able to shepherd his flock on his behalf underneath his rule and reign as a chief shepherd appears, these under-shepherds will receive this unfading crown of glory. Whereas the author of Hebrews concludes and ends at the very end, the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus Christ, the great shepherd of the sheep by the blood of the eternal covenant. The good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the, the great shepherd. Here is Jesus, this shepherd who's, who's going to shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. The eighth thing that we see, the Messiah will have the majesty of the name of the Lord. Again, we understand this as we, we seek to be able to go into the New Testament to be able to understand how Christ can bear God's name. It's because he is God. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2, not only in Christ's humiliation, that he, he did not count equality a thing with God to be grasped, but he emptied himself, becoming the form of a servant, humbling himself. In verse 9, he speaks of his exaltation as God highly exalts him and bestows on him the name that is above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And we see even this prophecy, somewhat of a shadow of a type, in, in Micah chapter 5, in the slither, as Micah is prophesying to what seems to be a lost and wayward nation, and God is going to deliver this remnant of His people by sending this Messiah. The ninth thing that we see in Micah chapter 5 is the Messiah will make a safe dwelling. See in verse 4, and they shall dwell secure for now. He shall be great. That here Jesus comes to be able to make us a safe dwelling where we find our rest and our refuge in Him. He tells His disciples in John chapter 14 that, that as he, he's, he's warning them of how He is going away, He says, don't be troubled. Believe in God and believe in me also. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am you may also be. And here Jesus comes and promises that he is going to make a place where no enemy will come, no enemy will conquer. Because he has defeated all of our foes. Sin, sickness, and sorrow will be no longer. The tenth thing that we see in Micah chapter 5 is the Messiah will be great to the ends of the earth. Again, we see God's power and might as, as Paul in Colossians speaks of, of Christ, the one who is visible, invisible above all things. All things were created through him and for him, for his own glory. And, and Christ rules supreme and over all things. All authority had been given to him and now he has handed it to his church to be able to go to the ends of the earth that his kingdom would reach far and wide. His kingdom would grow. that earth would bear the resemblance of heaven as he has authority over all things. Eleventh and final thing that we see here 
In verse 5, it says, and he shall be their peace. He shall be their peace. A strange thing to be able to say that, that a person would be a, an object of peace. Not that he will merely bring peace, but he will be their peace. How can a person be their peace? Well, again, we're not merely just looking at Micah chapter 5. We have all of Scripture to be able to help us understand this. And in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul makes this exact point in verse 14 where he says, He himself is our peace. Not that he merely brought our peace, that he himself is our peace. He continues and says, Who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the divided wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandment expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off, and peace to those who were near. Your Christ Jesus came to be able to break down that wall of hostility between God and man, wrath, judgment, children walking in the darkness, and but the rich mercy of God came through Jesus Christ, the person and the work, the Messiah which Micah prophesied. And I'm sure many people as they read this with slither of man-filled eyes were merely looking for a king to be able to come to be able to conquer Assyria. Christ came to be able to do far greater. To be able to defeat the enemies, defeat us as enemies, to be able to welcome us in as children of God that we might be able to have peace as we dwell in secure high places, as we rest underneath this ruler and this shepherd who gathers people from afar, who bears the name of our Lord Jesus, who came at the appointed time who was from old and from ancient days, this ruler coming from Judah who was born in Bethlehem. We see all of these promises of this Messiah in in five verses in Micah. But the greatest thing that happens, at the beginning of Matthew, they don't understand that this prophecy had been fulfilled. Matthew makes it clear in verse 1, he says, Jesus was born in Bethlehem. And they're saying, well, he's going to be born in Bethlehem. The truth was he had been born. That these things have been fulfilled through Christ Jesus as he came. As Paul writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, as surely as God is faithful, our word to you has been not been yes and no for the Son of God Jesus who we proclaimed among you was not yes and no, but in him is always yes. For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter an amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has appointed us. For he has also put his seal upon us and given us his spirit 
in our hearts as a guarantee. No longer are we looking backwards into the future waiting for this Christ to come. We look backwards and see Christ has come. And He has done all of these things that Micah had told about. And as we marvel in this fulfillment of these prophecies, let us not merely that acknowledge these historical events that partook, but realize the truth and embrace the transformation of this power of this Messiah who has come. The one born in Bethlehem, the one of the tribe of Judah who stands as the good shepherd, the ruler of all nations, the eternal word incarnate. That all of the promises find our yes in Him, our Savior Jesus Christ. This is the fulfillment of every divine assurance, the embodiment of peace, the one who shepherds us through the triumphs and the trials of life. Let us not merely just celebrate some historical event, but the reality of Christ's birth. As we think about that during this very season, let us rest in this truth, resonate with this joyous affirmation that Christ, God has finally sealed us with His Spirit, with all of these promises. Let us take this message beyond the walls, sharing this good news of Christ, the Son of God, coming, bringing peace, redemption, the fulfillment of God's eternal plan. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Let us pray. O gracious and most merciful Father, we give you thanks and praise that as we read through your pages of Scripture, we see that nothing comes by chance, that everything comes from your fatherly hand, that you, as the author of all pages of Scripture, have foreordained everything that shall come to pass. And we see Christ in these pages of Scripture written long before even Christ came down to this earth to be able to fulfill your plan, to be able to save sinners like us, that we might be able to find peace in him. Let us go forth boldly to be able to proclaim this message unto the nations that you rule and reign over all. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.